Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Matthew Chute. I'm coming to you now as the Climate Buddha. Today is September 1st, 2019. <clears throat> I'm calling, I am communicating to my cellular telephone without anybody present right now. It seems like I'm making a phone call to the world. I'm calling right now in the path of a hurricane. <clears throat> there is a hurricane hovering off the coast of Florida. That hurricane has been the focus of all of my intention, all of my work, and all of my planning has been around an impending hurricane's arrival. So, some of you, especially those in Florida, can certainly relate to this. But for those of you who have never been in the path of a hurricane. What we're doing is essentially waiting around for the predictions to either prove out to be true or not. The entire state of Florida is reeling from a series of projections that at first glance appeared almost a certain landfall of the hurricane. The hurricane was pointing, by all projections, smack dab at the middle of the state, and the hurricane has not come near the state yet. It's still off the coast, somewhere in the Bahamas area. But the projections have changed, and it's going to take a right-hand turn and start to head north at some point, and the degree to which Florida is impacted is changing. This is an example of behaving based on an imagined uh, future outcome. We are sitting around saying, hmm, there's a possibility in the very near future of a great storm hitting me. Shall I prepare? And the information that we're using to make that decision is uh, weather. It's about predicting the weather into the future. I took meteorology in college and there's definitely an art and a science to being able to predict the weather, but back when I was in college there weren't anywhere near the kind of geostationary satellites and other remote sensing magical machines that travel through space and time and send back pictures of what's going on on a worldwide basis. If you think about that for a minute, just 20 years ago, that seemed absolutely science fiction, Star Trek-like abilities. Well, right now, the entire state of Florida and probably the Georgia coast, South Carolina, North Carolina, are looking very closely at that science and making decisions of what to do, what to do next. The Climate Buddha would like to say that the same thing is happening with the climate. It's just the epoch, the time frames are a little different. I'm an abrupt climate change specialist. I looked for and sought out mechanisms that could cause the climate to change very quickly. And I said, should we be preparing for these and how probable are they? This predicting the weather and doing something about it in the case of the hurricane is almost universally agreed upon as prudent policy for how to run your life in the state of Florida. But yet that same policy, when moved out over the year-to-year -year basis, decade-to-decade -decade basis, is an entirely different predictive issue, isn't it? Suddenly, the naysayers about, oh, well, I don't know if that's actually going to occur, come forth, but yet in the state of Florida, the naysayers are saying, well, I don't know if the hurricane's exactly going to hit me, but they'll know very shortly whether or not it's going to occur. Unfortunately, the, the science 
and the mechanisms for abrupt climate change are sound in that there is certainly a possibility for rapid climate change so rapid that things that live can't keep up with that and things that can't li live can't keep up with that then what preparations are we going to do well preparation requires an intact civilization to to do if civilization collapses and we say well we need to prepare for climate change by using all of the tools of civilization to fix it and civilization doesn't exist anymore then gee we missed the boat twice there so a big question and the purpose of this podcast today is to ask this question what is the best use of our remaining time of having an intact fully functioning civilization if climate change continues to devastate <clears throat> our forests if climate change continues to devastate our ability to grow food if climate change continues to devastate the ability to live comfortably outdoors then what will we have left if those things are gone if we no longer have any arboreal forests because of fires if we no longer have any <clears throat> temperature that's a livable temperature what 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 we can't we can't get anything done i'd like to share a moment of my life concerning temperature i I do carpentry work and hand, handyman work and uh, I'm telling the people I work for, I said, there's, there's only so many hours in a day at the current temperatures in Florida, which with uh, the wet bulb are been over 100 degrees every single day now for a couple of weeks. For those of you who don't know what wet bulb temperature are, that's the, that's the feels like temperature. If you have an app on your phone, I use weather bug and it it says it's you know it's 88 degrees but it feels like 111 i've actually got screen captures of that and those days when it says it feels like 111 you, you just can't get a lot done and the days that it's that it's saying higher than that you you just you can't get a lot done outdoors you just the heat is too oppressive I happen to personally uh, have uh, a history of heat stroke. I'm a professional golfer and I injured myself many years ago and continue to re-injure myself from heat issues. And as a result, my sensitivity to high degrees of, of temperature is such that I begin to experience symptoms of heat stroke almost immediately after exposure. But at 110 degrees, uh, 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 the headaches come right away, the mental confusion, the lack of energy, and all the other associated symptoms that <clears throat> reduce your productivity. So what should we do with civilization until the temperature gets so high that we really can't do anything outdoors? The people in the Middle East right now are experiencing this, and uh, there is simply no place in the Middle East that's not having temperatures that are so extreme that functioning at all becomes a, a massive question. All of the country of Iraq was shut down a few years ago when they had a 120 degree heat wave come in for about a week. There's just no, there's just nothing you can do. There's nothing you can, you just can't, you can't do anything in 120 degrees other than try to escape it. And when I talk about living outdoors, <clears throat> I met a woman <clears throat> who was from Hawaii. And she talked about her life in Hawaii and how that life had changed because the uh, volcanoes had uh, displaced her. And I said, well, you know, how did you live? She says, I, I lived a, a semi-outdoors life for years and years and years. And I thought that strange, but in reality, 
if we take a look at the vast swath of humanity, there are so many of us without air conditioning. There are so many of us with various degrees of shelter that, you know, a shack on the outskirts of Mumbai is home to millions and millions of people. These people are not functioning on the grid. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have furnaces. They don't have ways to keep themselves comfortable except for the, the climate itself. Because I'm a Westerner and a suburbanite at that, there, that thought is foreign. That The idea that, wow, you have to really depend completely on the weather for your comfort. That thought alone may not sit well for an urbanite. But what if that, what if that changes? What if the millions and millions and millions of people billions of people who rely upon an envelope of weather that's livable, comfortable, and functional. What if that envelope of weather changes where it is no longer livable? The people in India and Bangladesh and all the other people that we in the United States consider third world, if, if it's 110 degrees and 120 degrees for long periods of time, where, where are those people are going to go? They, they can't. They can't escape this. And the problems with wet bulb temperature is that wet bulb temperature has to do with humidity in relation to temperature. And in Florida, the reason why it's been 88 degrees, but it feels like 111, is that the humidity has been 95, 97%. And I've lived here for over 20 years, and I can report what high humidity heat feels like from personal experience. I, I know what that is. There's something different that's going on now. This, this kind of combinations of humidity and temperature, I'm, I'm not fully familiar with. I I'm sure there's statistical basis for what I'm saying, but nonetheless, from a personal level, it's affecting me profoundly today when it's 111 degrees and super high hu humidity and you can't function because the wealth bulb temperature is so high. What, what is that on a worldwide basis? What it is, is the beginning of a collapse of society. Because if you can't go to work because it's too hot, if you can't grow food because it's too hot, then elements of civilization are going to start to collapse. So what are we going to do until that, that happens? The abrupt climate change community says that this is going to happen very quickly and that we have years years to enjoy a envelope of weather that is functional. There are mechanisms that can cause the planet to heat up. The biggest one, the most obvious one, that the general population can monitor on their own with a Facebook feed or any computer at the library can answer this question is just, just how much and what is the thickness of our Arctic ice. What's going to happen when the Arctic is no longer a shiny, bright, white swath of ice, but a dark, warm ocean? It doesn't appear that we're going to have an ice-free Arctic, or what's known as a blue ocean event, this year, but there is a few more weeks left in the season to determine whether or not that's going to occur, but it, it doesn't look that way right now but it came close and we have record low extents occurring, record amounts of ice loss. The graphs, the squiggly lines, all of them are ominous as a trend. So here we are in Florida, relying moment to moment on the feedback of our greatest weather scientific minds on the location of a hurricane and where it's going how it's going to get there, how much 
impact it's going to have and what we need to do to prepare. We're trusting that science with our lives and the decisions that are being made by families throughout the coast of Florida today. This very day, September 1st, 2019, could be life or death decisions. 140 mile an hour winds creates things flying in the air at 140 mile an hour. If anybody stood in a batter's box in baseball and had a pitcher throw a fastball at them, it only takes a moment to realize how terrifying it would be to get hit by that. Well, at 140 miles an hour, you're getting something that no pitcher in baseball can throw. Nolan Ryan is uh, at a, what, 104, I think his records are, some of that. You don't want to stand in front of Nolan Ryan's fastball. But at 140 mile an hour wind, you will be doing that and then some. So if you're not in shelter, your life is in great, great jeopardy. This preparation to protect yourself from flying objects is so difficult to do in hurricanes that most people choose to just get out of here. They just take off. They evacuate. How are we going to evacuate for abrupt climate change? How are we going to get out of the way of 120 degree days for huge swaths of our industrial society? We, we can't really do this. These realities of the consequences of abrupt climate change, the realities are so powerfully painful that again, I ask the question, what can we do now that we have civilization intact? What is the best use of our civilization now that it's intact? We have air travel, train travel, we have electricity. We have automotive travel. We have all the water and the things that keep civilization going along just fine. But one only has to look at the current water situation worldwide and ask how long is it going to be before more than one major city becomes dry and that when they turn the taps, nothing comes out? How long will that city last? intact as civilization without water? How long will any urban area last without electricity? How long will any urban area last without easy access to oil and gas? The loss of oil and gas and water and electricity that happens during hurricanes is familiar to all Floridians. The last great hurricane two years ago impacted where I was living with a power outage that lasted uh, five days. Five days in suburbia without electricity in Florida is terrifying. The temperatures are very high. There are not a lot of public transportation options in Florida, suburbia. In fact, there are none. This is a completely automobile-based suburbia. And when you can't drive your automobiles and you have no electricity and their water, it is truly scary because then you realize that your survival is so dependent upon uh, conditions that are beyond your control and no matter how resourceful you are, there's nothing that you can do about it. One of my favorite comments about our military's advertising for recruits is the concept of the army of one, where somehow one, one soldier, one man, all of our popular television and movies are about one soldier, one man, Bruce Willis saving the world, Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the right thing, the world is saved, just one army of one is 
the greatest lie of all time. There is no one that can do much of anything in the face of abrupt climate change. This is a massive collective action. Al Gore, whose work on the climate is notable in how ineffective it has been, but in the greatest respect for his efforts, he stood in front of the world and said, this, my friends, is a political problem. This is a collective issue. This is an issue of collectively working together to figure this out because no army of one is going to put water into the tap of a city that has run out. No army of one is going to turn on the electricity after all the power lines have fallen down from too much wind. There is no army of one that's going to provide enough food to Mumbai if Mumbai has a heat wave of 120 degrees for two weeks straight. These are collective problems. And the Climate Buddha realizes the difficulties of collectivist actions because they have failed so profoundly to prepare us for climate change. Greta, who's getting lots of attention, is showing that her generation is the, is the consequence. The consequence of abrupt climate change is Greta's generation and, and younger. They, they are not going to have anything because the generations before have robbed of all the resources and opportunities and done nothing with the, with the trash, done nothing with the refuse done nothing with the consequences, the, down, the downstream consequences of the decisions that were apparent to Carl Sagan in 1985 when he said, we need to do something about this climate change. This is a math problem. We're looking at physics and math, at the blanket, the transparent blanket of CO2, and that alone was heating up the earth in a fashion that was measurable, understandable, and known. And that the graphs were showing a continuous process of heating that was going to lead to an unlivable climate where civilization will not exist. This was known. This was known way before Carl Sagan's time. Because this weather report is a weather report about preparation and when there are no preparations you have to ask yourself what needs to be done now that civilization is still intact that will impact as much as possible the first thing is the realization that the things that the climate Buddha is talking to you about are based in logic in science Scientific systems are one of the few things out there that arrive at reliable and repeatable truth. And when we have reliable and repeatable truth being applied to the climate, we're seeing a future of high temperatures, global destabilizations of our growing systems, tremendous problems with wildfires, the drying out of our growing cycles, the inability for farmers everywhere. The man who's in charge of Extinction Rebellion in England, who has given up on the current political system as the climate Buddha has, is saying it was a, was a farmer who was seeing the results of climate change on his growth cycles. And interviewing farmers of all types, you'll hear the story again and again that we can see the changes in our growth cycles. We can see the difficulty of whether we're going to plant and, where, and the decisions and the results that we're getting from our planting, the decisions that we're making as a, as a farmer are coming true, that we're not growing like we should because something has changed. And that, that, that thing that has to change is going to require a deep commitment on a collective basis to fix 
The army of one in the Extinction Rebellion is the planner and the man who said, we need to do that change. Perhaps the climate Buddha is an army of one in that same message. But in the end, what's needed is an army of one that is then turned into an army of all of us. The climate Buddha believes that there will be a time when the army of one will be an army of all of us. That time will be a time of universal alignment. When the entire planet will know that we need to collectively work together for the benefit of all of our survivals because individual actions beyond that will be wasting precious time and precious resources. Resource allocation and the ability to empower certain segments of civilization to do certain things has never been a deeply rooted collectivist action with such urgency as it is now. The capitalist system has created priority structures and decision-making choices for society to organize itself around, and we've just kind of gone along with that because we're all part of that system and the actual wisdom controlling it is you know you euphemistically described as the invisible hand of the market but there's that's also a tremendous tremendous uh, dishonest representation but chasing the money finding the money where is the money can we get more money that organizational principle and that organizational principle alone is no way to run the place in the face of abrupt climate change. It's no way to run it before abrupt climate change, but it seemed to work out. I had a very good upbringing in a very nice piece of suburbia and had opportunities through my entire life as a result of this system, this system of chasing the money and teaching us as slaves to continue to chase the money and find money and if we can acquire money this in money thing i think has been has jumped the shark it is no longer a valuable way to run things because we have other things that are more important namely keeping the environment in a livable fashion for as long as possible the abrupt climate change community realizes that it's going to be very difficult to do that it's going to be very difficult to do that if any of the mechanisms of the abrupt climate change community don't exist. If we took away ice-free Arctic, if we took away the release of methane, if we took away the heating of the upper troposphere, if we took away the aerosol masking effect, if we took away all the other scientific facts that we're aware of, mechanisms that can heat up the globe so quickly, if we just said those aren't there, but we just went on this nice smooth linear progression of co it's too late there are there's enough co2 dumped into the atmosphere from the beginning of industry which is around 1850 if we began to, and just said you know that's it we're not going to count on any of the other science and just going to go with the fact that there's a big blank in the co2 that is enough to disrupt civilization because the predictive power of the CO2 blanket alone has created all the graphs that the UN has been using to say that we need to do something collectively now we need to do something this graph shows in in these futuristic dates of 2100 and 2050 that the sea level is going to rise and that we have all these problems and they're so far in the future and oh they were not taking into account abrupt climate change but that's enough that's enough that was enough information a weather report a weather report that said we have a storm coming it's sitting off the coast of the planet it's a storm that's going to destroy civilization what are we going to do with our time the political collectivist actions of our planet are the most important things that that we need to focus on
hashtag logical radical says that if you know that there's a trend that's going to destroy civilization at some point and that the mechanisms to repair that are the existing political methods that we currently have which almost universally within Western culture are these representational governments where we hire people to do all the work. We hire them with our votes or they hire us with their money to vote for them. Since we've been hired by these suits and skirts with with huge bankrolls behind them, they have manipulated the system and won the game of getting us to vote for them. Whatever that system is, has created where we are now. The current destabilization of the British government, uh, the thought that the leaders of the government somehow have, the leaders in the United States and in Britain, they somehow have the right and the political support to destroy their own governments. This is a billionaire game. This is about international finance and the people who are running whatever that is. International finance and the mechanisms of international finance are a huge gray area for all the voters of the world because those who are pulling the strings of international empire and international finance and how money changes hands between China, Hong Kong, London, Geneva, New York, Sydney. All of this is about billionaires. It's about people with tremendous numbers behind their names, numbers that are meaningless to middle-class workers everywhere. These, this class, this international finance class, has got the Rosetta Stone for the democracies, for the republics, and for the representational voting government. They have... They have the magical system that controls it. It's called money. All you need is enough money. If there's enough money, you can get elected. If there's enough money in practically any system, you can put whoever you want into power, into power with the philosophies that you want. And this system of official money-based corruption and I didn't even mention the wonders of the Electoral College in the United States, the equivalent of this horrendously rigged and fixed political system exists in all Western democracies. This problem of democracy being limited to a representational government for people who got there through money is why we're all facing climate change, abrupt climate change, and why that we have a very short window of having civilization. This system has failed to make collective action a priority when it became life and death. The hope of the UN of bringing us together is another complete failed collective action. The UN's goal was to reduce war after World War One, Two, and they said this we need to stop whatever that is. It didn't work. It didn't it failed. The United Nations has failed in climate. They have failed in creating world peace. And although someone far more educated than I can list off the great successes of these systems, which there are many. The most important issue and the reason why the climate boot is talking to you now is the ability to have respect for the environment as a collective action. This respect for the environment as a collective action in relation to the climate change is not occurring at any level and all of the Paris Accords and the numbers and the games that are being played by the suits and skirts who have been hired to represent us have failed profoundly at protecting us from the effects of climate change. Hashtag distribute power is the solution 
It's a new system. The problem isn't who we elect. The problem is, is what we're electing them into. If we were to elect Gandhi as the quarterback of the New England Patriots, Gandhi walked out on to the playing field and said, give me the ball, I will show you the way through peace. He would be tackled, the ball would be taken, and it would be a, a note in history. The game needs to change. The playing field is wrong for the, for the sport of survival. The playing field of international politics is a complete and epic fixed rigged game for billionaires, zillionaires, and those who control the monetary systems and the various players. This is a this is a competitive sport with who gets the biggest chips with consequences for billions of people. This is no way to collectively run the thing. We are humanity. There is no difference between a Korean, someone from Wales, someone from Sydney. We are all humans. Humanity has a consistent genetic signature that allows us to mate with one another. And all of the genetic research is showing that it we're coming from a common ancestor somewhere in Africa. And those common ancestors are what we are. We are humans. These genetic variations in skin color and language and all the other things that separate us are actually irrelevant in the face of climate change. It doesn't matter what language you speak if it's 120 degrees out. We're all humans. This game, this playing field of political collectivist action needs to change. And it turns out there are many who've thought of this. The climate Buddha is, is a absolute nobody on the list of people who have thought up things that can run the system better than the current representational systems that we have, the current dictatorial systems that we have, the current fascist systems that we have, all variations of collectivist action that exist in our societies today for by and large have all profoundly failed to deal with the big picture issues of how to organize society so that we don't damage the environment to the point where that environment no longer will support life. None of them have worked. And although our indigenous have a certain cachet amongst the green movements as being some sort of thing to emulate, these are all representational systems based on dominance hierarchies and chiefs and uh, and silverback collectivist silverback leaders who do we choose as our leader and what is the method that we choose as our leader these are human frailties so if we got systems and analysts from the computer industry together if we had a conference we said we're going to take the world's best system analysts and we had a conference where we invited the greatest, the greatest cultural humanists who were trying to optimize the human condition. And if we brought the greatest psychologists who said this is the failings and the frailties and the limitations of the human mind. And we said, what would we do to put together a system that would allow everything that needs to get done to get done. What would happen in that conference? That conference of universal alignment is in my imagination, but it's already been done. I've said and said again that in 10 minutes with an internet on-ramp, I can solve just about every problem on the planet. These thoughts, these creative ideas are there. The will to implement them is not. But if this conference came together, they would show us that with a simple internet on-ramp, and for those of us in third world countries, this 
collectivist action can be modified, but we can have huge, huge participation in actual policy control. If I gave my small town I grew up in, in Cape Cod, full policy control on running that small town to the people of that small town, they could do it. The decisions necessary to run a town, although there are many, involve where you're going to fix the roads, how you're going to pick up the trash, whether or not we need to put new pumps in the water system, this trivialization of running government is by me is is no disrespect for the reality of it. There is are full time jobs for many people, but the policies that those full time job people these policies can be decided by the voters. With a specialization, of course. I don't think that we need to have vast swaths of of uneducated agricultural workers discussing nuclear power. I think we do need to have educated people making educated decisions about complex technical issues. This hierarchy of specialization in our society exists everywhere. Doctors need to vote on doctor issues, and engineers need to vote on engineer issues, and lawyers need to vote on lawyer issues. This simple specialization is a mouse click away for anybody working on a computer at any length of time on anything from Facebook to Microsoft Word. We can do this thing called collectivist action so much better than it is currently being done because we have no more time to dither. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we are facing very, very, very painful life and death decisions right now. And the decisions of life and death are being handed To whom? Who is going to get food when food becomes scarce? Who is going to get their electricity fixed when electricity no longer works? Who is going to have their water shipped in from an external location? Who is going to have a say on the use of physical force? Who gets to decide where the weapons that we've created are deployed. Who? You would be frighteningly surprised on the answers to those questions and how few people get to have their finger on that voting lever. Statistics was not my favorite class in college. I took advanced mathematics and physics and we had to take a semester of statistics at a college level, and you can have that. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a master of that particular language in science. But there's a certain sample size necessary in order to get a critical mass on an issue. Well, the sample sizes of one guy, a hundred in Congress, 240 in representation. This is too small of a sample size because it's failed. It's failed so profoundly to do anything about the environment. Right now, the current administration is rolling back every single, every single effort to do something about the environment. It's just a huge rollback. This problem we need a consistent decision that decisions about the environment that last for decades, years. This ability to change the leadership structure from one outlook to another outlook based on the charisma of the person who's standing in front of the camera, this is simply no way to run the world. Collectivist actions having a fully distributed power grid of everybody voting on the policies that will make change is the only way we're going to escape this. This is a systems problem. Systems analysis. The conference that I'm talking about 
cost a few million dollars and it would be done. We would know what we need to do. Voluntary implementation of all of this is exactly how Gandhi did it. Gandhi's revolution was a voluntary revolution. I am a great believer in voluntary revolution. A violent revolution may be necessary in certain microcosms of the process. I'm certainly not educated enough to describe how that could be implemented. But we're talking about changing the way we do government. We're talking the relationship of the people to our collectivist futures. And that needs to happen soon. Hashtag instant radical change means it's a date in time when this will occur. We can set an agenda of hundreds of thousands of changes using this system that could all be implemented instantly in a single day. There will be no pain of transition that will only be what we were and what we are. The future does not look good no matter what decisions we make because of all the mechanisms that that have been put into place from the complete disregard of the environment. It doesn't look good. The problem with the aerosol masking effect and the destruction of our major polluting systems of our worldwide economy, that destruction has consequences which will be the instantaneous increase in worldwide temperature from the loss of the aerosols. So the collapse of civilization, the collapse of the uh, carbon-based economy, even if it's done on purpose, is going to have tremendous consequences. Who should be making that decision? Who, who should have their finger on the lever of the decision to shut down all industrial civilization in order to save it. Who should be making that decision? One person? Or all of us? Or enough of us? Where we knew that we had a say in the process instead of being treated like farm animals. Our entire collectivist system is all based on the idea that we're all farm animals and this this is the system that created our society, this sheep herding idea that there's a sheep herder and there are sheep. This animal slavery thing. There's no way to run it. There's no way to run the place. This concentration of power at the top of the of the heap as the farmer holds sway over its stock has turned into pig farms and CAFOs and this crazy society that just has continued to ignore the consequences of environmental damage. This all has to stop. Man has a lot of problems with the way their brains have evolved. These brains and how they've evolved the mechanisms that have evolved our, our brains, the epigenetic systems that have created the thought and the mind of the vast swaths of population, these are not suited for the difficult decisions of our society that, 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 are, that we're facing today. There's this nuclear power problem, this international trade problem, this money problem, this all of these destruction of the environment problems from the burning Amazon to our collectivist systems in religion. These are faults of the inborn brain that we've inherited from our ancestors. Well, that brain needs to be educated and specialized in such a way that we have respect for the environment. That simple question why is it that capitalism ignores environmental costs? Is, is, is a question that's not answered because capitalism does not care about the environmental costs until it costs too much. Well, it turns out that the environmental costs of the oil-based economy are completely obfuscated by 
a worldwide multi-trillion dollar system of price supports and control. We, the United States is literally giving billions of dollars to the oil industry so, so that, what is this? What is the worldwide investment in the energy infrastructure from governments handing over? Who's in charge? Just how much control does this non-votable, non-accessible, no zero policy control system of capitalistic energy production, what control do the people of the earth have over this? It does what it wants to do. What control do we have for the oil in the ground? There is no mechanism for that now. What if we had a mechanism for that? What if we had worldwide voting capabilities where we could vote on energy infrastructure for the entire world? What if we had that control? What would we vote? But if we voted the wrong way, and if as if the climate Buddha knows what the right way is, but what if the whole world voted to do something that turned out to be just the wrong thing. You know, we would at least all go down with the ship knowing that we tried and that we were participating in it instead of sitting around like slaves, like sheep in a cattle herd, waiting for the farmer to decide whether we're going to live or die. Is that the way you want to go out? Is that the way you want to, you want to live? Gene Roddenberry visualized a, a new way to organize the world that wasn't so capitalist-based, so money-based. This game, this gaming of the system, turning it into he who has the most chips and having slaves battle one another for the crumbs, this system has jumped the shark. It does not work. It has not protected us from abrupt climate change. Hashtag instant, rad instant radical change says that this can change at any moment. Hashtag distribute power says that these concentrations of powers have failed. Hashtag logical radical is what the Extinction Rebellion is all about. They're looking around going, wait a minute. This system is going to kill us all. We need to do what we can do as soon as possible. And the degree of optimism about what that thing is varies from person to person and scientist to scientist. One of the leaders of the abrupt climate change movement and the originator of the entire concept is Guy McPherson. He feels, he feels that the efforts and energies are going to not result in anything that's going to stop this because he's right but at least we'd be going out with an effort at least we'd be saying look we tried instead of allowing billionaires millionaires and a, and, a, and a system that we've inherited from medieval Europe to run the place has just been continuing to destroy environments and destroy people our religions are essentially genocide machines Religion functions really great in two different phases. One phase, which we're seeing in the Amazon right now, the leadership of Brazil is about to genocide the indigenous population in, or at least a large portion of the indigenous population under the name of Christ. And if we look back over the history of Christianity, we'll see that there are many genocides that have been done in the name of Christ. So we got two phases. It's called when the genocide's going on phase, and then the after genocide phase where we rewrite history. Religion's done a great job of becoming an excellent public relations machine for genocide. Genocide works, by the way. It's very effective when you wipe out entire populations of people, take their assets, take their land, make them their, your own. There are many other methods 
to justify and use genocide, but religion's relationship to genocide is a truly frightening one. It's about a philosophy that's difficult to decode, understand, and manipulate, um, but there are experts who can take a philosophy, understand it, decode it, manipulate it to get just about whatever they want out of that philosophy. We look towards our philosophically astute for leadership, but what we end up getting is lies and distortions, justifications for the mistakes, ass-covering behaviors, and we get our political system. This kind of control, the centralization of control that happens in our weekly Sunday sermons is subtle. It's not easily understood or decoded, but it exists. By what they say and what they don't say, none of the teachings, none of the teachings have been respect for the environment. Little did we know just how important that was. That the religions of our indigenous, which show a deep abiding respect and, and amazement that the environment provides for, for themselves and the respect for that, was destabilized when we decided to kill all the buffalo and the plains of manifest destiny yesteryear. The respect for the environment was destroyed because there was no respect for the environment. It was just simply something to be exploited. The carbon cost for this has been extraordinary. The cost for all of this destruction is coming due in forest fires everywhere. This religion of hatred of the environment is no way to run the place. Chuchi is a religion. I developed it years ago for uh, hashtag competitive enlightenment to understand the nature of achievement within the system of golf. I'm a golf professional and it's a lifestyle. Anybody who's played golf realizes you just don't play it once in a while. You practice it, you think about it, you work on it. It's a lifestyle to be good. It's a great lifestyle. I am one of the luckiest people on the planet to have lived this lifestyle. It's somewhat hedonistic. It's really about making yourself unbelievably happy at struggling in things that make you unbelievably upset. That oxymoronic aspect of the game is a conundrum philosophically, but you talk to anybody who spent a lot of time doing anything to the point where they're trying to make that as good as they can possibly be, you talk to them and that you realize that this is a lifestyle, is a religion, it's a philosophy, it's a thought. So this achievement, religion, this how to be, began to morph as the climate change issue became more and more important. And one of the most important aspects of, of what to do with society while it's still intact, what to do with civilization while it's still intact, as we head into the next epoch of abrupt climate change, destabilization of all of the infrastructure systems that support civilization, while we're at that phase right now, one of the most important issues that Chu Chi the religion sees as a huge stumbling block is the hashtag distribute power, concentrations of power through weapons. I was talking to a man who was an army uh, participant in the tank corps. I don't know if he was higher in the hierarchy, but I was talking about tanks when, of course, men love the big toys. And I asked him about tanks. I said, you know, what... How many tanks would it take to, you know, take over the United States? He says, oh, just about a division. And, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, there's somebody who right now is in charge of our tank corps and can put a tank in every single corner of our major urban centers. And you can't remove them. They are so destructive weapons, so difficult to get rid of, that they just, you'd have to rearrange society around these tanks that are sitting everywhere in every neighborhood. You can't get rid of a tank 
that's fully armed, it, it can blast. The idea that there are enough weapons like tanks that can pretty much occupy the entire planet and control it through a concentration of power is in direct opposition to the hashtag distribute power system. As a result, Chuchi, the religion, became a religion of hashtag weapon surrender. There is no mechanism right now for governments everywhere to surrender their weapons. Chuchi is that mechanism. If every government surrendered their weapons simultaneously, hashtag instant radical change, surrendered all of their weapons, hashtag distribute power says that we can have the political will to do this. We can have full weapons surrender by all of our leadership structure so that there's no longer a massive disparity of power with the decision-making processes that have ruined our lives and the lives of all living things on the planet. First step is to disarm our governmental entities. They are no longer concentrations of weapon-based power once they have surrendered their weapons. Then we can talk about the surrender of weapons on an individual level. The current mechanisms for weapons surrender available in the United States are voluntary, as is this system. But it's deeper than that. It's based on the realization that no matter how many weapons you have, you will not be able to stop abrupt climate change. No matter how much concentration of power that you wield, you are not helping abrupt climate change with more power and more weapons. Somehow, capitalism, weapons, concentrations of power, and a dysfunctional political system have all somehow gotten together and are in bed with one another. Can you see the existing political system that we have unraveling that? Can, can, you, can you imagine the existing political system unraveling this strange series of concentrations of power that are based on what's called the structural violence of the system. This structural violence, this threat of impending physical doom that is hovering over every single person on the planet needs to stop. This is no way to run the place in the face of abrupt climate change and re with reduced resources, with people who are going to not have food and water, where people are not going to have opportunities for realization of their dreams because the climate's not going to allow them. Do you think that these guns and weapons are going to fix anything? I like to provide the mechanism for the surrender of all weapons. That mechanism is Chu Chi the religion. My name is Matthew Chute. I am Chu Chi. I don't want the weapons. I am hashtag distribute power if I am the central organizing point for the surrender of all weapons. Rest assured that they will be placed somewhere safe. I have no need for this concentration of power. My goal and any new person placed into any position of power, the a question that needs to be answered is, is what is that person's relationship to power? Do they want it concentrated or do they want it distributed? What if we had the entire planet deciding how to use our concentrations of, of weapon-based power? What would it look like? Would it look like what we currently have? Abrupt climate change, the degradation and reduction of civilization in the face of abrupt climate change. 
is not going to be easier as a, from huge amounts of weapons. And the idea of the individual ownership of weapons in our current uh, crisis of school shootings and ongoing skirmishes of small weapons fire that's going on every single day somewhere in the United States at least is this going to prepare society for the rigors of abrupt climate change what is the solution to this so many have talked of confiscation I believe that voluntary surrender is the way to do this Chuchi is a religion of voluntary weapon surrender. It is the mechanism through which peace will actually occur. There is no relationship to weapons and peace. There is only a relationship towards dominance, power concentrations, and control through the, through the few upon the many. I like the many to have control of the few. And I think given an opportunity to show what our lives could be like, free of the structural violence built into our political and governmental systems everywhere throughout the world, that there's a new way to be. And that way is free. My name is Matthew Chudin, the Climate Buddha. You can find me on Patreon. You can help support the Climate Buddha through PayPal with a simple note and some money to chuchi at yahoo.com. I can be reached at that email address as well. The Climate Buddha needs support. I really appreciate you listening. Thanks for your time.